Well, good evening, everybody, and welcome. Thank you for being here. In a particular way, if this is your first trip to the University of Portland, we are so happy to extend Holy Cross hospitality to you. Uh, my name is Karen Eichler, and together with Father Charlie Gordon, we direct the Garavena Center for Catholic Intellectual Life and American Culture. And um, we were looking at the calendar, and we only have about three more things happening this year. I mean, the school year is rapidly coming to an end. This is usually the part of an evening where I talk about all the things that are upcoming and point you to the posters. And we have we have just a couple things coming up. Uh, a week from tonight, we're welcoming uh, a religious historian who's going to be talking about the sort of tortured relationship between Pope Pius XII and um, during the Nazi era. And that will be right here in this room at 7.15. Um, the next night, we have four poets coming in from all over the country. And they are going to be participating. In a They're going to be reading a little bit of their work and participating in a conversation about how their faith, and they come from several faith traditions, how their faith uh, has an impact on their creative process and the things that they wind up writing. And that will be in here the next night. Um, and then apart from that, um, I can invite you to our reception and pre-play panel, pre-play panel for Pippin, just to make things extra exciting. Um, we, uh, we, have, we have a reception because it can't be a Garavana Center event without food and drink. Um, so we open the doors at 6.15 for the 7.30 show. And then we've rounded up three uh, folks on campus who we give exactly eight minutes to to shine a light on a dimension of that show. And people wind up seeing a completely different show than they would have without that. So that is, um, that is April 13th. Then we graduate and we start it all over again. So we're excited about that. So um, lots of stuff coming up. If you are a teacher in any um, K-12 school anywhere and you would like to get complimentary free uh, professional development units for being here, there's a sign up on the back table. All we need is your email address and tomorrow morning a certificate will show up in your um, inbox. That's right. That is right, Sean Bay. You're absolutely right. So that's for teachers. If you are a student um, at the University of Portland who wants to make sure your professor found out that you came to tonight's lecture, all right, uh, there's a table right around the corner, and after Dr. Craven's talk uh, has concluded, um, our wonderful student workers, Andrew and Bryn, will make sure that we get all the information we need to let your teachers know that you were here. All right? Brother Charlie, is that... Does that do it for announcements? Perfect, ready to go. Okay, we have been at this job for six years, and not once in those six years and approximately 400 events has the guest speaker called me two days before and said, by the way, I'm going to need an amp for my guitar. <laughs> and that is because we have never had Dr. Chris Kramer, um, who is the chair in Ignatian Studies and Imagination at Regis University in Denver, Colorado. And that term, imagination, shows up in everything that he writes. And it was really fun to go through his resume of all of his writings because 
In addition to knowing an awful lot about Thomas Merton, he loves to take deep dives into hymns and um, Christmas carols and, and songs that we've probably listened to a thousand times. Little Drummer Boy is next up on the docket, all right? And, and unpacking those and, and finding surprising themes in there. And that is what he is going to do tonight with the well-known hymn, um, Amazing Grace. He has taught at Xavier University and um, Regis University and University of Notre Dame. Everywhere he's ever taught, he has gotten an award and an award for teaching. So we are in great hands tonight, and I introduce you to Dr. Chris Craven. Good evening to everybody. Thank you, Karen and Father Charlie. Uh, I'm just thrilled to be here. I've never been to Portland. Um, I just escaped a bomb cyclone in Denver, uh, and uh, I have four children, so this uh, is kind of a sanctuary for me to get away from, from home for a little while. Um, you know, uh, the guitar, I'm not a great guitar player. My brother is here who lives in Gresham, and uh, I told him earlier, if I had planned this better, we could have done this talk together. Mm. Um, just a little bit of music that, um, that I'll weave into the talk, but that means that I'm counting on you to join me. Oh. Will you do that? Mm -hmm. So uh, we'll see how it goes. But I, I do want to use music as a kind of lens for thinking about uh, the times that we live in. So not just the historical kind of a view on uh, this song, Amazing Grace, right? Which we all know, anybody who lives near a church or grew up in the church. Um, but I'll weave a couple of other uh, pieces of music out of the uh, African-American slave tradition. And I hope, particularly when we get to those, that you might consider joining with me. Okay? So we'll see how it goes. Um, you know, there's an old Chinese proverb. I know you know it. Um, maybe it's a curse. May you live in interesting times, right? May you live in interesting times. And it always seems to hold true when we talk about race in this country, uh, diversity, whether we're talking about racial or ethnic diversity, gender and sexual diversity, religious and cultural diversity. And our times have certainly become more interesting, haven't they, under our current president? of the United States, maybe just a little bit more interesting. And indeed throughout the world, right, um, as we've seen so painfully in New Zealand and across Europe where American-style white nationalism and hatred of the stranger, of the Muslim, the immigrant, seem to have gone mainstream and viral in ways um, that truly makes the heart shudder. You know, there, it feels like there's a darkness moving in the world that can be truly immobilizing if we allow it to overcome us, you know? And so I think it takes a certain courage to show up for a talk like this, a talk on diversity, um, and for the university to open up spaces where people can share uh, their own experiences around these difficult conversations. And to be honest, I had to muster up a little bit of courage myself to think about how to approach this topic with you tonight. 
you know, there's risk involved, there's vulnerability when we broach these kinds of topics, these painful topics, related to our history, but also to our present reality. But if we can't manage it here, you know, in a place like this, the Catholic University at the University of Portland, where can we, where can we find those kinds of spaces? If not here, then where? So I think it's a great, um, you know, we're privileged to, to go to school, to study, uh, to have these kinds of spaces where we can, as it were, practice talking to each other and above all, perhaps listening, deep listening to one another. So just to say thank you for coming. Even those of you who are here because you're getting extra credit or something, uh, you know, um, thank you for being here. And I hope that it's worth your time. And the truth is, I think um, we've always lived in interesting times. If by interesting we mean difficult, painful, confounding, cursed, when it comes to cultural diversity and racial and religious conflict in this country, no matter who our president, the toxic cultural forces of racism and white supremacy forces in which we all live and move and have our being have never really died in the United States. They may have gone underground for a while and morphed into different forms, but we've never lived in a post-racial America. Amen? That's the truth. So if my task tonight is to help us to make some kind of rational sense of race relations in the United States, and the stubborn lack of progress in addressing racial disparities in healthcare and education, in our criminal justice system, and indeed in our churches, where it's still true today, as King, Dr. King said over 60 years ago, 11 o'clock Sunday morning is still the most segregated hour in America. If I'm going to try to make rational sense of, of these realities, then I'm going to fail. I'm just going to utterly fail. And so I'm not going to try to make any kind of rational sense of these realities that cannot be rationalized, justified, explained, or wished away. Rather than try to make rational sense of any of it, I'm going to make an appeal to another kind of sensibility that I believe, in spite of it all, we all carry within us, which is our deep capacity for empathy. That strange and sometimes irrational curiosity we have about people and communities that are different from us. Sometimes that seems strange and alien to us, even that invoke fear in us. And I want to suggest that above all, it is the artists, the poets, the musicians who school our capacity for empathy, who remind us sometimes with a shock of our common humanity. You know, James Baldwin famously said, the artist is here to disturb the peace, to break us out of our habitual thought patterns, right? So, if nothing else, I hope you'll leave with a renewed sense of, of empathy and perhaps of possibility 
and maybe even will open a space for some kind of grace to break through. For grace, too, is a powerful force, I believe, in which we live and move and have our being. <clears throat> but unlike the violence and the fear that screams at us every day from our headlines, grace moves more quietly in the world. Like the wind in the trees during the springtime, right? That draw the sap rising through the boughs when winter ends. She moves in the rhythms of the earth herself and in the goodness that dwells in every human heart, though it might be paved over by fear and ignorance and all kinds of other traumas that we live through. And so my thesis really is that we've got to look, because she moves more quietly in the world, we've got to learn to look beneath the surfaces and listen beneath the surfaces. And no other thing, I think, can help us do that more than, than music, than music. So it's very simple melodically, right? Will you join with me? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but
place. Thank you. Some of you will know that um, John Newton wrote this song in the middle of the 18th century. He was a pastor at the time, English pastor, and of course long been one of the most beloved hymns uh, in the Christian English-speaking world, right? And yet there are darker parts of Newton's story, darker chapters in his life that not everybody knows about. Um, there was a film called Amazing Grace that you may know that tells the story of his friend William Wilberforce, who was an abolitionist. But John Newton appears in the film. Uh, Albert Finney plays, beautifully plays a part. Um, but not a lot of people know that this uh, beloved hymn uh, was composed by a man who used to be a slave trader, who worked on the slave ships. From about age 20 to age 30, John Newton worked on the slave ships, invested and worked in the slave trade, working the ships that carried newly captured Africans down the rivers and then out into the Middle Passage over to North America. And even after his conversion to Christian faith, Newton did not entirely separate himself from the industry. And so his story and then the song itself and the story behind the song raises questions for us today. For example, questions about the legacy of Christianity and white supremacy in America. Questions about whether redemption can come too late for a person like John Newton. And indeed, a little bit more dangerously, if we're honest about our own stories, our own narratives, right? Our own moral failures. Can grace come too hard or too late for us, for each of us, when we look over the course of our life? How about questions to what extent a beloved work or piece of art can be separated from the artist? When history reveals the artist, after all, to be a deeply flawed person, you know, who am I thinking about right now? You know, we could talk about R. Kelly or Michael Jackson or Pablo Picasso, right? When, what do we, how, can we separate the art from the artist? So in a little while, we'll circle back to the story of John Newton. But I want to get there a little bit more dangerously, more personally, and ask you to consider with me the meaning of that word grace. And to think about experiences or events in your own life that you might call grace moments or passages about which you might now say, I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. And I think grace most often works like that. As we'll see in Newton's story, it doesn't magically or mythologically change reality overnight, all in a flash. Rather, grace reveals reality to us more clearly than we had seen it before. Indeed, only sometimes reveals the truth to us bit by bit over the course of years or even a lifetime. But it's in the revelation of the truth, the, the, the seeing in a new way, that we are potentially set free. 
And so for the next few minutes, I want to share, if I may, just a couple of scenes or passages in my own journey, graced moments that uh, for me in some way opened my eyes to reality in a fresh way and changed me. Uh, And each of these moments or passages uh, is punctuated by the power of music. So that's where I'll, I'll weave some music into each of these scenes. And my hope is that each of these might in some way resonate with your own story, your own experience, your own questions. Scene one, Charleston. So about a year year and a half ago, I flew to Charleston to participate in a retreat at a Trappist monastery just outside uh, of the city called Mepkin Abbey, Mepkin Abbey. And while I was there, I also spent some time with local organizations, including the monks, who were uh, working really hard to heal race relations in the city of Charleston. You can imagine, just under the shadow of Emmanuel, Mother Emmanuel, AME Baptist Church, right, where um, nine African-American church members were massacred by a young man whom they had welcomed into their midst uh, for Bible study one evening, a man who would tell police just a few hours later that he wanted to start a race war. As my host drove me past the church, we stopped uh, and just spent a few moments in silence right there on the street. And it was, as you can imagine, uh, very moving to me. It was nighttime, the church was lit up, um, and it felt to me like hallowed ground. Hallowed ground in the way that maybe Gettysburg felt, you know. Um, I don't say that lightly, but, but that something about that space uh, felt both both very painful, but also in some way hallowed. About an hour's drive north of Charleston, Mepkin Abbey is situated on a former slave plantation. One morning I was out uh, walking the grounds and I saw a sign, that uh, just a rough wooden sign next to the woods that said, Slave Cemetery, two miles. And so the next morning, uh, before dawn, I woke up early and set out through the woods with a flashlight, and then through corn and cotton fields. I had never seen a cotton field in full bloom. Finding my way in the half-light along a rough path through the woods, and then to this iron gate where Uh, I swung it open, and there was a small cemetery with old, old headstones. I came to the place just as the treetops were starting to light up with the dawn of um, the dawn light. The whole landscape, I've never experienced anything quite like it. It, it, It's as if the the, the land itself remembers, breathes what uh, German theologian uh, named Johann Baptist Metz calls dangerous memory, dangerous memory. And it felt to me like even the trees, um, you know, shrouded with what what the locals call 
resurrection moss. Can you picture it in the south, these trees, with the moss hanging down? And it felt to me like the landscape was holding the memories of, of, the, of that place for centuries. And I could almost hear the slaves singing in the fields. Share one or two things that I hope you'll join with me that I think you'll recognize. I want to die easy when I die. Oh, 
trouble. God's gonna trouble the water. God's gonna trouble the water. Just want to um, go back to that first piece just for a moment. I want to die easy. Just point out a couple of things going on musically that I, I find fascinating. I want to die easy when I die. want to die easy when I die. Major chord there. I want to die easy when I die. Shout salvation as I rise. That? Is it a major or minor? Shout salvation as I ride. Any guesses? It's a minor. If, what, what would be the difference if I said shout salvation? You hear the difference? That's a major. Shout salvation as I ride. But they don't sing it that way. Right? It's a minor chord. You know, it retains that darker feel. And precisely on the line that you would think would be a major chord, right? Shout salvation as I run. But they retain the minor. Why? Why? into the very structure of the song is this yearning, right, for freedom, for liberation, perhaps for the afterlife, yeah, for some kind of, you know, if I can't die easy on this side, let the other side be a little bit better, and yet um, it retains this element of doubt, of uncertainty, right, I can almost see it, I can taste it, I want it, but I don't know for sure. If I knew for sure, my chord would be a little bit more triumphal, right? That's not what they give us, you know? And so structured into the music itself is this tension of the yearning for the afterlife, the yearning for liberation from the chains of slavery, and yet, right, we don't see it yet there. I want to die easy when I die. Please don't let me die at the end of a rope, right, or at the end of a whip. The pathos that's buried in this music um, is not just in the lyrics, but it's structured into the chords uh, themselves. I want to share um, just a couple of quotes from uh, some of the great literature about these spirituals. great abolitionist and former slave Frederick Douglass in the opening pages of his slave narrative describes what it was like to, to hear his fellow slaves singing after dark as they made their way through the woods between the fields and the farmhouse as he writes making the dense old woods for miles around reverberate with their wild songs revealing at once the highest joy 
and the deepest sadness. Every tone was a testimony against slavery and a prayer to God for deliverance from chains. He says, the hearing of those wild notes always depressed my spirit and filled me with ineffable sadness. I frequently found myself in tears while hearing them. And the first time I read Douglas's description of this music, I have to say was for me a kind of uh, moment of grace, a, a revelation of the real through the heart of another human being. And it has been so every time I've uh, read his slave narrative with my students, read these pages aloud during, during class. You know, in the very first page of the book, he tells the story of his mother who would come to him. He has the faintest memories of his mother coming to him in the middle of the night when he was but a few years old. Separated from him as an infant and sold to another plantation 12 miles away, the penalty she risked for not being in the field at sunrise was a severe whipping, he says. Nevertheless, she came. He writes, I do not ever recollect of ever seeing my mother by the light of day. She was with me in the night. She would lie down with me and get me to sleep, but long before I waked, she was gone. Very little communication ever took place between us. Death soon ended what little we could have while she lived, and with it, her hardships and suffering. He was just seven years old when his mother grew gravely ill, and he was forbidden to visit her. <clears throat> while she was sick, and he says, I received the tidings of her death with much the same emotion I should have probably felt at the death of a stranger. It's no wonder that so many of the spirituals um, express a yearning for the mother, the, the mother who has been lost and torn away far too soon. To sing, sometimes I feel like a motherless child, is at once to feel the mother's absence down deep in the bones, yet also, paradoxically, in the very act of singing, right, to feel her presence somehow behind and beyond the veil of separation. So absence and presence somehow in the very same act of singing. The veil between life and death, presence and absence, disappears, even if only for the duration of a song. W.E.B. Du Bois, in his 1903 classic, The Souls of Black Folk, opens every chapter in that book with a, a, a verse from one of the sorrow songs. To listen to the sorrow song, says Du Bois, is to behold the most beautiful expression of human experience born this side of the seas. He, he suggests that the spirituals are the great gift of the African-American experience to one of the truly Amer original American uh, art forms out of which would rise the blues and jazz and rock and roll, right, and all the rest.
Listen to what he says here that so much resonates with the music we just sang. He says, through all the sorrow songs, there breathes a hope, a faith in the ultimate justice of things. The minor cadences of despair change often to triumph and calm confidence. Sometimes it is faith in life, sometimes a faith in death, sometimes assurance of boundless justice in some fair world beyond. But whichever it is, the meaning is always clear that sometime, somewhere, men will judge men by their souls and not by their skins. Is such a hope justified? Do the sorrow songs sing true? Those two questions, as we've already seen, are built into the structure of the songs themselves. Is such a hope justified? Question mark. Do the sorrow songs sing true? And it's no wonder that the spirituals were at the very center, right, of the civil rights movement, that, that people sang the spirituals while they marched. And if you just think about it for a moment, is there any greater act of both strength and vulnerability than singing with other people? Right? Shoulder to shoulder. When you sing something like, you know, um, we shall not be, we shall not be moved. We shall not be, we shall not be moved like a tree planted by the water. We shall not be moved. And you're surrounded by five or 10 or 15 or 50 or 100 others singing that, reverberating in your ear. You begin to believe it, perhaps, and find the courage to stand your ground when the dogs are coming, you know? One other thing I just I want to point out and say about these sorrow songs. When you imagine them in their original setting, being sung in the fields and the forests, under the hush arbors at night, and beneath the light of the stars, you feel a connectedness to the earth itself, the rhythms of the earth, who does not ever forget the least of her children. It's that memory of the earth that I spoke of earlier. It's that sense of communion with the natural world that permeates Langston Hughes' poem, The Negro Speaks of Rivers. I've known rivers, I've known ancient rivers as the world and older than the flow of human blood in human veins. My soul has grown deep like the rivers. And I wonder how many of you know about this new museum, the National Museum uh, for Peace and Justice, which just opened near Montgomery, Alabama, which memorializes one of the nation's least remembered atrocities, the lynching of thousands of black people during the decades of Reconstruction following the Civil War. In one room of the memorial, you'll find hundreds and hundreds of jars of soil from the sites of documented lynchings. Each jar labeled with the victim's name, the soil collected by their families, 
or by community members or by volunteers. I'm haunted by this uh, room, even though I've never visited, you know? Um, it's as if each jar of earth, each jar of soil is there to remind us of those terrible words in the book of Genesis, which God spoke to Cain after he murdered his brother Abel. What have you done? Listen, the voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground, from the very earth. It's fair to ask the question, you know, what grace is there to be found in such painful remembrance, right, of our nation's history? Is there any grace at all, any, anything of redemptive value in remembering in this way? I want to quote from uh, Brian Stevenson. Some of you may, may know Brian Stevenson as um, a civil rights attorney, the founder of the Equal Justice Initiative, and the creative force behind this new memorial in Montgomery. He puts it this way, um, and here he, I think he gestures to the possibility of redemption even here at the foot of the lynching tree. He says, I believe that each of us is more than the worst thing he's ever done. I have to believe, if I believe that, I have to believe it for everybody. I'm not interested in talking about American history because I want to punish America. I want to liberate America. Just seeing the names of all these people, many have never been seen in public. The memorial, in other words, is not about retribution. It's about re remembrance and reparation, healing what has been broken. It's not about remaining prisoners of our past. Rather, it is to insist that as hard as we try to disappear the past, it is always contained in the present, like the bodies of the dead who become the earth. By honoring them, by remembering their names, we recover something of our own humanity. And perhaps we even reclaim something of our own democratic aspirations as a people. I think the same could be said of what's going on right now at our border, at our southern border. Um, and just, just want to briefly reference a book I just finished which is an astonishing book, um, a powerful book, uh, written by a former patrol, border patrol agent. Um, and in part of his book, he just chronicles the number of the dead coming through the desert, the nameless dead, right? And how thousands and thousands and thousands who have no names, and part of the work of um, the, the, the volunteers and the medical examiners recovering these bodies is to recover their names, to give the dead back a name. Just want to go back to Charleston for a moment, and you may remember um, at the funeral for the pastor of uh, Mother Emmanuel, Reverend Clemente Pinkney, President Obama gave the eulogy, and he built his comments on that day around the idea of grace. He said, as a nation, out of this terrible tragedy, God has visited grace upon us 
for he has allowed us to see where we've been blind. He's given us the chance where we've been lost to find our best selves. We may not have earned it, this grace, with our rancor and complacency and short-sightedness and fear of each other, but we got it all the same. He gave it to us anyway. He's once more given us grace, but it is up to us now. It is up to us now to make the most of it, to receive it with gratitude, and to prove ourselves worthy of this gift. Now, that's a fairly audacious thing to say, uh, you know, on this occasion. To suggest that God has visited grace upon us in this horrific mass massacre. For he has allowed us to see where we've been blind. And then, of course, he um, broke into song and he began to sing the hymn Amazing Grace. And I think what the president maybe was trying to say and trying to sing in that moment in Charleston is already implicit in the story of John Newton that to some extent we are all partially blind. None of us can claim to be perfectly woke, as the saying goes, right? And we need to be challenged, to challenge each other, to be sure, prophetically, vigorously. But we also have got to give each other room to grow, enough space to grow into new understandings, even to say the wrong thing, to do the wrong thing, what I would call a space for grace, a space for mercy, in which, you know, we, we can learn to trust each other enough to share our stories, our beautiful cultures, um, our beautiful joys, our beautiful sorrows, and just to begin to recognize the humanity in each other. And so the question that I would put to you, how do we cultivate those kinds of spaces, spaces for grace? spaces for mercy. If not in our classrooms and in our churches, in our mosques, in our synagogues, then where? If we can't do it there, then where? I, I want to make this point and then I'll move to the next, uh, the next uh, scene. And that is that it's only in the drawing near, it's, it's through proximity, nearness, physical nearness, and presence to each other, I think, that the veil of racial and cultural difference, only to the degree we approach it personally, right, vulnerably, can we begin to finally break through it. And so that's how we can prove ourselves worthy of the gift when we, when we risk enough vulnerability um, to lean in to one another and to create spaces where we can do that. Two more scenes, much briefer. Um, the first, growing up Catholic and white in the South. Everybody okay? Take a deep breath. So my brother and I, a uh, family of six kids, we grew up in Lexington, Kentucky, in a white suburban neighborhood where I had almost no contact with any peoples of color until my mid-20s when I left uh, Lexington and moved to Colorado and was quickly plunged into much more diverse environments. Less than three miles from our parish where we went to church and went to school, 
there is a thriving black Catholic church. I had no idea, no idea that there was a black Catholic church in my city. And until my mid-20s, really, I had very little idea that there was such a thing as black Catholics, I'm sad to say. There are some four million Catholics of African descent in this country. Four million, that is a lot. I did not know them. Nor was I ever taught the extraordinary history of black Catholic sisters, priests, and lay parishioners across the country who kept the faith so often in the face of breathtaking racism and segregation in their own church. The problem of the 20th century, W.E.B. Du Bois wrote, is the problem of the color line. But like many white Catholics of my generation, the problem was almost completely invisible to me. Of course, you don't really know that the, the bubble that you're living in until somebody bursts it for you. The veil for me began to be lifted, um, as I said, when I joined a, a black Catholic church in, uh, when I moved to Denver and my family joined a black Catholic church there in Denver. And the relationships we formed there uh, really transformed my whole sense of what it meant to be Catholic, how to pray, in a whole-bodied way, right? the music of the church, the prayer. And over and over again in black Catholic churches in three different cities, uh, I've been welcomed like a brother. And I found a new powerful sense of grace moving in the community uh, that I had never known quite in that way before. I want to share a story of, a, of just of a class that I taught in Cincinnati at Xavier University for a number of years called the Black Catholic Experience. That class was inspired in part by the memory of Sister Thea Bowman. Anybody know about Sister Thea? Just an amazing, amazing uh, witness to the faith. A Franciscan nun and scholar inspired millions with her singing and her preaching, her scholarship. And like many black Catholics, Sister Thea believed that Catholicism was uniquely equipped to build relationships across the color line, right? The global Catholic church, a multicultural church. She said, uh, she said the beauty of universality is that the church is able to speak to people in whatever language they understand best. And we're not just talking about verbal language, right? The music of the language of music, of dance, and all the rest. And so Sister Thea, I think it's important that she didn't just approach the problem of race or racial uh, segregation in the church intellectually, right? But as an artist, as a singer, as a musician. In a way, she was able to get people out of their thoughts about race into a deeper kind of a communion through music, through preaching, through the word. And so uh, inspired by Sister Thea, we visited, my class and I visited a number of black Catholic church, churches in Cincinnati. And I'll just share a couple of quotes from my students. One student wrote in his journal, I have seen a different side of my faith that I didn't know anything about. 
I've learned about the embarrassment that blacks felt when the Jim Crow laws were in effect. I've heard the music that made me feel some of the same oppression that African Americans in my own church were feeling. Another young woman wrote, I've learned that you cannot understand a culture by simply reading about it in a textbook. You need to fully immerse yourself, both cognitively and physically, to be a part of it. Now, did we change the racial dynamics, uh, the structural dynamics of segregation in the city of Cincinnati? No, <laughs> right, of course not. Uh, you know, but I would never underestimate the impact that those experiences had on my students' religious imaginations, you know? Uh, we planted some seeds. In fact, a number of my students continued to attend those churches throughout the semester and into their junior and senior year. I was amazed. Um, some of them came back to visit me and said, oh yeah, I still go there, I still go there. And thinking back on my own experiences, the gift that they received from black Catholics makes sense to me. Despite the historical wounds that might have disposed black Catholics to turn me away and my family, or perhaps just humor me for a little while, until I disappeared, right? The fact is that they didn't. They welcomed me, embracing me and my family as their very own. As one of my students uh, wrote in her journal, she said, going to these churches made me to feel that no matter where you come from or what you look like, you are welcome here. We are part of each other's story. That's what I would call grace. Right? You open a space and you can create the conditions for the possibility of something new to emerge, a kind of awakening. Proximity is the doorway to grace. The last scene, and then we'll return to John Newton. Um, these are my kids, so I want to share a little story about my son Henry. We have two children adopted from Haiti. Uh, Henry is our youngest, and I think you all remember early last year um, in a closed-door meeting on immigration, when our president uh, said some things about a number of African countries and about Haiti, describing them as shithole countries. Now the date was January 11th. The following morning, January 12th, was the eighth anniversary of a massive earthquake in Haiti that killed some 300,000 people. So I'm sitting across the breakfast table from our son Henry um, who came to us 12 days after the quake and whose smile could light up a football stadium. And I'm still stewing over the president's remarks from the day before when I look across and I see the t-shirt he's wearing and in large block letters on the front of his shirt it says, I can't hear you over the sound of how epic I am. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, you know that's 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 a pretty good counter message to uh, to what our president said the day before, and so that was a moment of grace for me, of consolation. And yet it was it was bittersweet, right? I had to ask myself, 
Do I have faith in America? Is Henry a dark-skinned Haitian boy now twice the size of his peers in third grade? Is he welcome to be Henry in his own skin? When he screws up, uh, will there be any room for mercy, you know, as I often screwed up as a kid or as a teenager and got away with it or was given a second chance? Will it be safe to be him in his own skin as he grows older? What has helped him the most and helped us as his family is all those folks who see how epically beautiful he is. Um, as beautiful as my biological children, with all his gifts and with all his struggles. It truly does take a village to raise a child. Every person in the last nine years who has loved Henry, I thank and I cherish. Neighbors, teachers, coaches, therapists, friends, strangers, family members. Their gift to him has been that grace implicit in the great spiritual which says, if somebody asks you who I am, tell them I'm a child of God. Right? By their love, they show him his child of Godness, you might say. It's that grace in my students' discovery that no matter where you come from or what you look like, you are welcome here. We are part of each other's story. That's the kind of grace we need to work on in this country. Amen? Amen. So let's go back to John Newton, a, a final couple of thoughts. Right, I had to show you at least. Uh, this is kind of a more recent picture. As a young man in his early 20s working on the slave ships, Newton established a reputation as one of the most crude and profane men in the business. Not only did he regularly make use of the swear words, you know, the curses that were common to sailors uh, of his time, but he made up his own swear words. As one historian notes, swear words which exceeded the limits of verbal debauchery. <laughs> and some of his most cruel epithets were reserved for the cargo in the hold beneath him. In March of 1748, the first stirrings of a change in him began to happen. He was on a ship in the North Atlantic when a violent storm came upon the vessel, so rough that it swept overboard a crew member who was standing right next to him. He and another shipmate lashed themselves to the pump and desperately tried to, uh, you know, um, bucket water out of, the, out of the hold of the ship. Convinced he was about to die, he cried out, If this will not do, then may the Lord have mercy upon us. For 11 more hours, the crew fought to keep the ship from sinking, until at last the storm subsided. Two weeks later, two weeks later, the battered ship came into port in Ireland. Newton and the other surviving crew members near to starving. Even then, after facing death, his conversion was not immediate. For two more years, he worked the ships until, at age 30, he grew very ill and was physically unable to do so any longer. 
And he began then to ask himself, if I am worthy at all of God's mercy, because I have not only neglected my faith, but I have directly opposed it, mocking others who showed any kind of faith. And all the while deriding and denouncing God as a myth. And so a couple of decades later when he wrote the hymn Amazing Grace, and he says of grace that it had saved a wretch like me, he truly, truly meant it. He had felt himself to have been a wretch beyond all possibility of forgiveness. In uh, 1788, he finally broke his silence about those years in the slave industry. He published a pamphlet called Thoughts Upon the Slave Trade, in which he described the horrific conditions on the ships during the Middle Passage. The pamphlet sold so well that it had to be reprinted many times. He became an ally of William Wilberforce, a member of the British Parliament, an abolitionist, and Newton would live to see the abolition, the abolition of the slave trade uh, in the Slave Trade Act of 1807. But about himself and of himself, he did not hold out much hope. My confession comes too late, he wrote in the pamphlet. It will always be a subject of humiliating reflection to me that I was once an active instrument in a business at which my heart now shudders. Now, ironically, as he grew older, he became blind. Physically blind, he succumbed to blindness. And yet, could we say, arguably, that he had been saved from another kind, a much worse kind, of blindness before his death? And he had actively worked to, uh, in his work for abolition, to save others from the same disease, if you will, of blindness. Perhaps his redemption had not come too late. And yet we could ask, um, we might ask, had grace moved him to reject his former views about white supremacy? It was quite possible in his era to be an abolitionist, to detest the institution of slavery and still believe in the superiority of the white race over the black race, the superiority of white European culture over black culture and religion, right? And I don't know where Newton came down finally on those kinds of questions. But for me, the more interesting question I'd like to leave you with has to do with us, right? With our disposition, with our commitments, with our attitudes today. When we as individuals and when we as a people look back over the course of our lives and take an honest measure of the social histories that we have inhabited, to what extent might we recognize with sadness, perhaps even with a shock, our own blindness, our own complicity in realities happening right now at which our hearts will one day shudder? Just as Newton did not change his ways overnight, the movement of grace in our lives seems to work quietly, by stealth, if you will. Grace beckons to our freedom, inviting us, but never 
compels it or overrides it, right? Never forces us to choose in a certain direction. That is left up to us. To say it in terms of Catholic theology, grace works according to nature, to our nature, and doesn't override it. It works with our freedom and not against it, with our broken, beautiful, and sometimes painfully, stubbornly captive freedom. Grace meets us at least halfway to the truth, but the rest is up to us. And so we can count ourselves, if we like, as woke all day long. I can know all the right things to say and what not to say. I can be ready to pounce on anyone who says or does the wrong thing. But I think until we risk really moving beyond our own comfort zones and practice deep listening with the stranger, with the other, until the eyes of our hearts have been opened through friendship and solidarity, until I learn not only to tolerate but to celebrate the God-given beauty of others and other cultures. To count myself as woke may be little more than a kind of virtue signaling, window dressing, cheap grace. It's a start, perhaps, to know the right things to say, what's, what we ought not to say, right? It's a start, but does it create real change? Proximity is the doorway to grace. Can we imagine and work to create communities of diversity and kinship in which we can authentically say, as my student said, <coughs> that no matter where you come from or what you look like, you are welcome here. We are part of each other's story. That, to my mind, is a vision worth living and fighting for, and perhaps even worth dying for. If not now, when? if not in spaces like this where, when will it finally come, our revelatory moment, our moment of grace? Thank you all. Thank you, Dr. Pramuk. I think it's safe to say that We've been visited and touched by both amazing and grace tonight in your comments. Um, if you have a schedule that means you need to, to leave right now, um, you can do that. No harm, no foul. If you would like to engage in some question and answers uh, conversation, um, this is a space that, that we'd like to create for that, not to solve every problem in the world. And, and to don't put the burden of healing all of us um, on Dr. Pramuk's shoulders. He's got an early flight tomorrow. Um, but if you would like to stick around and, and pose some questions, he's gracious enough to stick around for that conversation. Okay, so let's give some folks a moment to, to clear out, and then uh, if you if you're staying but you need to stand and take a little stretch to get some oxygen uh, into your body, go ahead and do that, and we'll we'll reconvene in about a minute. Thanks.
Initially, when we bought slaves in this country, they were immigrants. They were strong ties to where they came from. And this eventually evolved into an American slave culture. And then involved to a little more than a slave culture after the slaves were freed. And we've progressed somewhere from beyond that. But that's a very interesting one to understand. How did this culture really change? And when did it really become an American culture? Stumped? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Do you, do you mean um, at what point did... Well, they were all immigrants. Then we had this large mass, and they had babies and child children, and then they they knew nothing of their homeland except the lore and the tradition, and so they eventually became an, Amer an American slave culture, and then they moved past um, the Civil War and it was another kind of a slave culture, and we crawled away from that somewhat. I was, I'm just a little... Uh, just, uh, trying to sort out the word immigrant there with well, respect I mean, to the slave community. Well, I wouldn't use that word to describe the slave community. No, I mean, they, but they were essentially, you know, they were all from another country. They all, you know, whatever type, they were they good government back there, bad government, tyrant, you know, whatever. But they were all this people from another country. And eventually they became people all from this country or mostly from this country. What we stopped bringing slaves in, I can't remember when it was mid 1800s. Let me let me just have a go at it in, in this in this respect. So for me, a big I'll, I'll sort of adapt your question as best as I can. You know, many have asked why would the slave community adopt the religion of the oppressor. So the, the interesting question for me has been, when did um, you know? Christianity evolve. How did Christianity evolve under the slave, in the slaveholding South? You know, um, and so where you have this amazing and quite beautiful and haunting convergence or synthesis and something new being born that um, up between African religion and and Christianity as preached to them, in the, you know, by the by the slaveholders, but also what's called the Great Awakening. These traveling traveling preachers that moved through the South. And so you have these, these amazing adaptations. Um, one, as one scholar puts it, he says, the, slave, the slaves like to say that, that there's a Bible within the Bible, right? It, the master is quoting St. Paul at them, slaves obey your masters, but the slaves are drawn to which books? Exodus and the Gospels, right? Jesus who's whipped at the end of a lash, Jesus who's executed on a tree, you know, hung from a tree, that the resonances in the life of Jesus deeply appealed, that, that resonated with the slave experience, as did the story of the liberation of the slaves from, from Pharaoh in Egypt. What I'm getting at in a sideways way is just the emerging of cultures in, in the form of religious culture, you know, 
that is, uh, you see it in New Orleans and places like New Orleans emerging and in Haiti, right, of, of, uh, of Catholicism and of, of, um, uh, of voodoo culture, right? You go to Haiti and they'll say, you know, we're 100% Catholic and we're 100% voodoo. <laughs> that there's, there's this fascinating merging in the birth of something new um, and the transformation of Christianity under the African-American experience. I don't hear that any more vividly or powerfully than, as you might have gathered than, than through the music of that tradition. So it's, it's sort of a sideways response to your Well, question. essentially then, you, yeah. I've got an answer there. Yeah. It's when they became Christians. It's more or less, that's when they, they adopted the culture such as it was of this land as much as they could. With this caveat that it was not the Christianity of the slaveholder. No, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. I find it really challenging in these polarizing times to um, to live out my aspiration to be an ally to anybody who feels on the margin or not being heard, not seen, and also trepidation in, um, in my... I can't possibly understand your experience. And, and every now and again being told, you can't possibly understand my experience as a privileged white woman with a lot of education. There's no way that you can be part of this conversation. And, and I wondered if you had, I mean, white men have it pretty bad in some ways in terms of um, being basically told you can't possibly understand uh, somebody else's sorrow. and I just, I guess I'm just wondering if you have a counter to that. Um, if someone is really trying in earnestness to be an ally and, and just to listen and, and to be told, you can't, you just, you, you can never understand, so I'm not even going to try. Yeah, it's, it's such a, um, and there, there is sort of a, there is a deep skepticism about not just the possibility of empathy, but the usefulness of it, if I'm not in your community, you know. Um, it's, a, it's a hard one. I, I, I sort of feel that on the first day of class when I teach a course in black literature and faith, you know. What business does a, a white Irish dude have teaching this class? And I sort of try to break the ice on the first day to ask the question and, um, and let them respond first before I try to make any attempt and it's, it's often quite um, it's revealing and sometimes beautifully surprising in the way that students themselves before I even try to make a, a defense or an apology as it were in the old sense of that apologetics um, that the, the, the reasons they'll give why, why it is valid for a person not in the tradition or of that history to be drawn to it to, to accompany. If I can't fully understand or walk in your skin, amen, it's true. I can accompany and I can listen and we can talk to, to each other and I hope also you'd be open to hearing, empathetic to hearing my part of my story, you know. Um, it's not to suggest an equivalence between the Irish immigrant experience at all and the black experience. But if we, if I, I guess 
what I, deep, deep down, and I sometimes will let this out in class, but I, I try to wait a little while, but I, I, I'm so worried about um, the alternative to empathy or to the possibility that I might be able to feel from within. That's, that's how I would define empathy. Our capacity to feel from within the life situation of another person. So it's not just understanding, intellectual, but it's a, a felt sense grounded in our common humanity. But the alternative to that would be what I think is, is a very fashionable kind of cynicism. I, I worry about, you know, I can't and therefore I won't bother trying. And by the way, don't bother trying. I'm not interested in you being in the room. Now, as a, as a person of faith, as a human being, just simply, I, I'm a person who, who doesn't want to live without uh, empathy, without hope, with a sense of hopefulness, and without the possibility of empathy. I guess I, the world would look very bleak to me. We would all be in our camps, and self-interest would be the name of the game, and power. Everything then is filtered through the lens of, of who has it, and who doesn't. And if you happen to rest on top of the hierarchy of power, then by default, you're guilty. Okay, I, I can get that from a structural power dynamic point of view, but you've already accused me without knowing anything of my story. Of my story. The structural, the categorical analysis is very helpful, and it's valid. I, I want to underscore that. Yet, if the structural analysis gets in the way of our capacity to see persons, then I think we're committed not to persons, but to ideologies. And that's the very, I'm, I'm here, I'm drawing a little bit from Pope Francis, who says, we have to be very careful, we live in what we call, he calls, a culture of the adjective. That, that we assign labels, right? And according to our ideologies, those labels have a certain hierarchy or ranking. And he says we got to be very careful that, you know, that we don't let our ideologies stand in the way of our encounter with people, with persons. You know, I, I think um, that's why I so much love teaching and where the classroom, I think, is one of those very few privileged spaces where over time, you get to know people. And my students, when I walk in on the first day, we're probably all victims a little bit. We succumb to the culture of the adjective. It's the white professor who, who has an expensive education and therefore X, Y, Z. Over time, and I think it, it only can happen over time through the building of relationships, they get to know me a little, they learn to trust you know, then the adjectives begin to disappear and we can begin to deal with each other as persons. You know, I, I and yeah, the last thing I'll say maybe is this. Yeah, I can't understand what it's like to be in your skin. I don't understand what it's like to be in my own skin half the time. There's a dimension of mystery that remains to all of us that I will, to my dying day, be trying to learn about and grow into understanding of, of myself, much less do I think I could understand you. And that applies not just to my black or Hispanic student, 
applies to my wife, to my children, and again, to myself, this dimension beyond, as it were. And if, if, if from a perspective of faith at least, um, that remainder, that element of mystery uh, is, is, is important for me. Do you have any people who, maybe across the course of history or even living today, uh, who are most have been most helpful for you in terms of your understanding of uh, the relationship between uh, active and contemplative uh, kind of rhythms of life? Hmm. Uh, that's like a softball coming right over the plate. <laughs> You're gonna say Merton. I'm gonna say Merton. Okay. Sure. So you may know that I've done some work on Merton. Uh, you know, Thomas Merton is one certainly. Uh, you know, and Merton, a lesser known part of his writings are his writings on race. But but in the 1960s, Thomas Merton, a, a very famous Catholic monk and spiritual writer. Um, it's a, it's a great question because I think um, whether it's Merton or a Henry Nouwen or Centering Prayer, Thomas Keating, right, or you, you name it, any of the mystics, Teresa of Avila or Hildegard of Bingen, what these mystical or contemplative traditions help us to find that center, to live from that center, um, to listen from the center. The first word in the, in the rule of St. Benedict is listen. Listen, you know, so not a passive, but an active listening, expecting to find Christ everywhere in the persons that we meet, you know, that radical rule of hospitality. Treat every stranger who comes to your door as if they were Christ. Now, that's hard to do if, if I'm living according to the culture of the adjective. But if I, can, if I can live myself from a place of deep centeredness, um, prayerfulness, contemplative practice, what have you, meditation, if, if uh, you're drawn to the Buddhist tradition. Um, for me, music, uh, playing the piano, being at the piano is sort of my habitual form of prayer, where I find my center again. Um, then maybe I can go out into the world when my kids come to me or my students and be, be ready to receive and learn and listen. Thank you. Yeah. Yes. I have, I'm really striving to be an ally to people in my life, and I know I'm not always a great one, but my question kind of centers on how to tell people around you that there's a problem. I'm super close with my parents. They're lovely people, but they grew up in the 60s, and they kind of are, believe in like a post-racial America where it's like, the South is where it's racist. We don't need to work on it in our neighborhood like within 10 blocks of us, there's one Hispanic family and the rest is like white retirees and young people, young white families with kids. And it's kind of hard like around like Thanksgiving and stuff that will come up. And I feel, I'm in the college environment right now, so I'll say something that I feel like is pretty non-controversial. And my family will be like, wait, why is that? Like, why can't, so, like, I don't really see that as a problem, those sorts of things. How do you try to convince somebody that this is a problem, not just with politics, but with, like, 
relationships with other people and mercy because my parents are wonderful, merciful people, but I don't think they always see their own bias sometimes. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. Um, I mean, how hard was Thanksgiving after the election? You know, it came right after the election. I heard so many stories from families who were struggling to, should I go home for Thanksgiving? Or, I mean, in whatever side of the aisle you're on, right, that, 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 that it seems we reached new levels of, uh, of real anim animus, even within families, perhaps especially within families. Um, I would say storytelling, tell a story. You know, I, I think human stories of a friend that you know here at, at school, tell them about uh, what, what you've learned here, but not so much arguing at the level of ideas, because very quickly it gets into the level of, again, ideologies, political abstractions, or hurling the labels. But if you can tell a story, it can be very disarming of somebody that you know personally who helped you to see more clearly, you know? And, um, and that can be done very gently. You know, I used to think that way, or I, th I thought that way too, Mom, but, but then I met so-and-so, and I learned what it was like on this side of town, or experiences she had growing up in the Catholic Church, or whatever it might be. Um, yeah, so patience and, and, and mercy, but I think storytelling is, is a start. And I, I do think some of it's just generational, that time over time over time. Um, in a way, that itself is a privileged statement, you know. Um, some people don't have the time, don't, don't, don't have the time to wait for things to change. Yes? Uh, so I was listening to you, I just finished reading a book called The Garden of the Beasts, which is about the family of the American ambassador to Germany as Nazism was rising. And one of the themes is that the, the German culture was literally pounded, I mean, sometimes physically, violently, until it adopted a collective thought. And they use that term, the political term, the collective. And um, in listening to you and, and you know thinking of that, I think one of our huge challenges right now is to not allow that collective to happen. Uh, it does exist in some places. You know how how can we? What are the tools to to? spike the collective, you know, to, yeah. to blow up that collective balloon. And I, I think that's, um, both the right and the left are, are, can be very guilty of, of groupthink, I think is what you're talking about, that tendency to run in herds. Yeah. You know, Merton has a, uh, an essay called Rain and the Rhinoceros, and uh, the rhinoceros is a symbol he's drawing from the, the playwright, Eugene Inesco, who has a play called The Rhinoceros in which the rhinoceros is a symbol for modern man, you know, that we run in herds, and uh, never mind that we're trampling over everything. Uh, why are we doing it? Well, because this guy here is doing it, and this, you know, because everybody else, 
And so the, the, really the cure for what he calls rhinoceritis <laughs> is, is that we do need to cultivate um, the capacity for withdrawing from the herd, for solitude, for critical thought, for, um, for Merton, this would be back to the question about prayer, contemplation, um, you know, uh, so that the, the, the capacity for critical dissent is so important um, to form in ourselves and in our students, you know, to be loyally critical to the institutions to which we belong. That's a mature kind of a spirituality. If I can, if I can be Catholic down in my bones, and yet, uh, be, partly because I'm invested in the church, it hurts so much when I see it, what seems to me going the wrong way, you know, uh, or broken by sin, by, by scandal, indeed by evil, by real evil, as we've seen in the sex abuse crisis. As a Catholic, that hurts deeply, you know. So point being, whether it's the church or society, that capacity, if we can help form our students to be loyally critical or to, be, to, to know the difference between, right, when, it, when conformity is a good thing, uh, but there are certain times when it's disastrous. That's Nazi Germany. So, you know, Franz Jägerstar, teach them the stories of, of conscientious objectors, the Berrigan brothers, Dorothy Day, Thomas Merton, who are the people that have witnessed to a life of loyal, of, of being loyally critical to the communities that they belong to? And uh, I think our students are really thirsty for those kinds of role models, right? The other tendency, very strong, is just to throw it all out, to mistrust all authority, all institutions, just to see them as no, no good at all, government, and I think Boy, if, then, then we're very quickly sort of leaning into anarchy, kind of, kind of a thing. Maybe we can make that our last question. Um, I'm not sure, I'm trying to get this question. I think I'm just wondering if you could talk a little bit about risk. Um, I feel like I heard the risk to get close to someone who might be outside of your group or your comfort zone or the risk of having a conversation with your parents that may have a different view than you, the risk of an artistic endeavor seems that there's a lot of, I don't know if that's like a muscle, there's a risk muscle. Um, and I wonder if you to speak to that. It seems like you're, you're taking a risk teaching the kind of class that you're teaching and getting kids outside of their, students outside of their comfort zone. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, at, a, at an individual level, I, I, if, it, if I didn't have, you know, before every class, just say a little prayer to center myself and then trust and let go and see what happens. So there is an element of, 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 a, of a surrender that I'm gonna, I'm not gonna impose my agenda. I, I mean, I have an idea where I want to go in the classroom, but I also, um, I view the classroom as an experimental space because every time it's a different set of students and I don't know what's going to emerge. So as a teacher, as a, you know, it's letting go to see what might emerge and, and letting the group go that direction. 
I don't want to um, suggest, though, that, you know, the moment you asked the question, I thought of um, those nine parishioners, those nine African-Americans at Mother Emanuel. When we, when we open ourselves to the stranger, we become vulnerable and welcomed him in. And at some point during their Bible study, he opened his backpack and he pulled out a gun. Anytime we welcome a stranger into our midst, or we ourselves become the stranger, walk into a strange community, we're vulnerable. And I don't want to underestimate that or downplay it. Um, as a white male, I'm less vulnerable than, than a white woman or a woman of color in certain situations. So I, I recognize that. And yet, and yet, you know, that deep calling to love one another that's so central to the Christian gospel. Yes, we're vulnerable. Yes, we could get hurt. So what do we do? Um, we, we do it anyway. You know, we open ourselves up to relationship. Of course, within the appropriate limits and boundaries, if, if we're, if, you know, we don't want to behave in ways that are, we don't want to set ourselves up for harm for the sake of harm or for the sake of heroism or martyrdom. That, I don't mean to suggest that. This is why I think um, we, we, can do, we can do this to, together in groups if we can do it as communities, right? The civil rights marchers, by and large, the power of that movement coming out of the churches and they trained, right? They trained. They, it was a spiritual discipline to sit at a lunch counter when you knew you were going to get hot coffee poured on your head or spit in the face. And they didn't do it without preparation, right? So the, the, the practice of, of nonviolence is a spiritual practice that requires preparation. It requires uh, a teacher who can help us prepare ourselves for that situation. It, the point being that... Um, my greatest hope for this kind of a movement lies in the churches, in the mosques, in the synagogues, um, in the young people now after Parkland, you know. They're not doing what they're doing all by themselves, but, but it's the power of the collective. Let me change that word. Yeah, it can be positive. <laughs> it's the power of the community, you know. The difference, if I could, just the difference between the collective in a negative sense and authentic community the collective is all about conformity, uniformity, right? The oddball is not welcome. The gay person, the Catholic, the gypsy, Hitler said, out, right? That's the collective. When the, the person perceived as weak is, is not welcome and exterminated, right? That's the collective. That's the danger of groupthink. The oddball is... Whereas true community, the weakest member, right? The sign of true community is that the weakest member, the least useful member, belongs, is welcome here. That we protect the least useful, the most vulnerable. Um, that, I would say, is, is the difference between the collective and authentic community in the deepest religious or Christian sense. We need each other. We need each other. So to form communities, what, what Gandhi called, you know, a nonviolent army, you know, 
Gandhi was one man, but what did he do? He mobilized the power of the nation. We could say the same, same of King and, and so many others. So I hope that is in some way helpful. I, I think, thank you very much. It's a good place to come. Thank you all very much. Thanks for coming out, uh, everybody, and thanks for sticking around for a little bit deeper conversation and some deep listening. So appreciate that.